A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Okay, my voice isn't that great, but every time I need to order or locate something alphabetically, I end up having to sing this tune in my head. And I'm sure I'm not the only one, and of course I know that C comes after B and E before F, but I can't help but pick up that song again and again when I need to find out if U comes before or after P. This little ditty is an example of what's known as auditory learning. It's essential for teaching phonics and other basic building blocks of education, particularly at a young age. It's a really good way to understand something if you have an audio medium with which to teach. However, a visual representation of an idea can sometimes be that much more impactful. Even in your own subscription business, I'm sure you look at numbers all day, whether it's your burn rate, your CAC, your call volume, whatever it is. But the raw data is basically useless unless you're looking at the actual trends. And the way that you look at those actual trends is by visualizing them. Visualization makes the data come to life to help you make changes to keep moving the trends in the right direction. We're going to go deep on this concept of visualization with someone who understands visualization at a core level. And that person is Vivek Sharma, the CEO and founder of Movable Inc. When we interviewed him a couple years ago, Movable Inc. was recently crossing the 40 million in ARR mark. And so I'm sure that they have increased and passed that particular juncture by now, as Vivek told us the lessons he learned with growth and a number of other topics. But we can't show you over headphones. I'm sure that learning from Vivek will be as easy as A, B, C. All that and more coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Vivek Sharma dives deep on visualization and growth. We talk about the last millisecond experience, phase transitions of growth, avoiding premature optimization, and centralized versus distributed teams. My name is Vivek Sharma. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a New York-based startup. I guess we're not a startup anymore. We're seven and a half years old. A little big now, so. We're a little <laughs> bit bigger, but uh, we're a SaaS company here in New York called Movable Inc. And uh, Movable Inc. basically helps lots of big B2C brands. Uh, these are companies like Nike, like Hilton, like American Express, make sense of the huge sets of data that they have. So we talk to a lot of these companies and they have lots of data squirreled away about their customers. Uh, this could be in their CRM file, it could be in lots of APIs, it could be sitting in CSV files. And what they struggle with is taking all this great data and turning it into the visual language that the average consumer speaks. So we're in this era, in a visual first era, an Instagram era, and uh, companies have lots of data, but they haven't been able to traditionally activate it into compelling visual content in real time. And that's what Move Blank helps with. And uh, marketing teams that use us, they drive greater revenue performance from their email program. Their marketing teams end up becoming more productive by doing less work. And consumers see amazing visual experiences in any of the, the marketing channels, whether that is email, a display ad, or a website. We talked a little bit before we started filming like about visualization and why visual is so important. But, but to, to maybe just get something really concrete, so what's like an example of what a customer has done like sure. with, with visual for their customers and things like that? Yeah, one example, one of our clients is United Airlines. And so three hours before you jump on a plane in United Airlines, you'll get this triggered email. And at the bottom of that email is a live seating chart. 
Uh, and so before you jump on that flight, United realizes not everyone loves to fly cramped together in an economy seat and fly a six hour flight across the country. And uh, they're able to highlight the economy plus seats that are available for another 39 bucks uh, you can upgrade to. And that seating chart is up to the second. So when that email opens, it is constructed in real time calling an API that United has, and you're able to act upon it in that instant. And so I might open it and see 10 seats available, you open it an hour later and there's two seats, somebody else opens it an hour later and the seats are gone, but you could pre-purchase Wi-Fi before your flight. That's so that's just one visual example of uh, an interesting thing a company is doing with APIs and data they already have and turning it into a powerful visual experience. Yeah, well, it gets to like the core of kind of like being human. Like I, I respond to this and I travel a lot and I'm like, holy cow, that's really cool because I don't want it to say nine seats and then I click it and then zero, right? That's exactly right. You know, we, we kind of call it the, the last millisecond experience. So you have all this data, you have all these things that happen, but in that last millisecond, you know, people respond to the thing that you're going to show them. They don't care that your marketing teams are siloed and you're running this program or that program and uh, who gets this offer. In that millisecond, it's determined whether that experience is going to be on point and get them to engage and to be emotionally resonant, or they're going to be hitting the delete button in just two seconds. Why do you think we're like that, like as humans? Like, why, why do you think that is, like that, that millisecond is so important? And obviously, mechanically, it's really tough, and that's what yeah. you guys are solving, but like, what's at our psyche that, that's getting towards like this visualization and just in time or that kind of concept? Yeah, I mean, I think we are visual creatures at, at the core, right? If you go back tens of thousands of years, the first cave person was communicating to his cave buddy, you know, here's the hunt that we're going to go on. And, you know, rumor has it, it was even to get them pumped up to go on the next hunt and to motivate the team. So that might've been the first marketer ever in existence. Awesome. Uh, so they're communicating through visuals. And in fact, the human brain can process images at 60,000 times times the speed of text. Oh, wow. So we've literally evolved to understand visuals and for it to mean something to us. And text has been a more modern learning. Uh, it's only been several hundred years since most of the world has been functionally literate. So if you think about that, visuals have been powerful throughout history and being able to tailor them to the individual, you know, now you know something about that person, what drives them, what motivates them. And if you're able to communicate that in that format, that can be incredibly powerful and emotionally resonant. Yeah, that's that's like one of those knowledge bombs where it's like a historical context where you're like, wait a minute, that's completely true. and like makes you start rethinking everything, which yeah. is kind of cool. As you're building this business, you guys have obviously had a lot of success and you guys are growing and growing and growing. What's been kind of the framework for your growth? You know, you have a lot of really big names. I don't know how far down, you know, if you go into SMBs or not, but like, What's been kind of fueling that growth or how did, how did we get to your current you know, level of cash right now or revenue, yeah. I should say? So MoveBlank recently crossed $40 million in ARR. I didn't want to say it because I didn't uh, know if it was public. Yeah, so yeah, there I, you go. I know uh, we, we recently <laughs> yeah. put that out in the press and I know some companies are cagey about that, but yeah. it is a little bit of a measuring stick for SaaS companies. Totally. And interestingly, certain things happen. Uh, I think all SaaS companies operate under the same laws of physics yeah. and certain things start to happen w when you hit certain inflection points. So I remember way back when we were at about $6 million in ARR and you know, we'd figured out a certain number of things. We had you know, some customers buying from us, maybe we had 50 clients. And I wondered what the future was going to hold and what I should be worried about and maybe start thinking about proactively. So there was a famous SaaS VC I asked this, I posed this question to, and he mentioned there were a couple stall points that he'd noticed in several companies. One was at the $10 million ARR mark and one was at the $30 million ARR mark. And uh, you know, I asked him, what's, what's going on at that point? 
What's the secret? And I think what I came away with was at that 10 million point, the companies that haven't figured out a scalable sales model start to crumble under their, their own weight. And maybe you had founder-led sales and maybe you had a sales with just some direct reports, but they hadn't really made that into a machine that where you could put in a dollar and get $3 out. So they start to struggle a lot. And you know, some companies get through that point and figure it out and keep going. At the $30 million mark, you know, you're maybe at 150, 200 employees, something like that. Yeah. And that's right past Dunbar's number, right? Yeah. Which is organizations haven't figured out how to scale. So that can be a stall point where you haven't learned how to hire talent consistently, how to train people, how to communicate, how to get people aligned around the same objectives. And so there's some of that organizational pain. And many founders who are great at that early customer development don't always make that jump into the operational scale and the, the rigor of running a company at that much larger scale. So you, you passed the 30. So you, you figured out some of those oh, things, we some sure. it, So it hasn't been a straight line. So sure. I talk about phase transitions. So, you know, if you have an ice cube at 32 degrees, it's going to melt into water at 212 degrees. It's going to turn into steam. So suddenly everything changes on you right when you hit one of these transition points. I'll give you one example on product development. Most founders at an early stage, they've figured out how to get to, not most founders, but the ones who have made it a product market fit, did it through hustle. They might not have been salespeople, but they figured out how to sell it well enough. Uh, they might not have been designers, but they did a decent enough job. And they were generalists. And when you become a larger company, you're about 80 people, you just assume, hey, we've done this before. Let's just do it all over again. We've got a new product that we want to go build. So not, not a premium version of your product, but maybe a completely new product. And you start to make decisions and you, you know, I might be sitting there as the founder as you go, hey, what if the product did this? What if it did that? And you're jumping around between ideas so quickly that it really stresses out people in the company who have their day jobs. They have to retain their clients. They have to go make a number for a quarter. And they're not comfortable with the sales pitch changing from one meeting to the next. They're not comfortable with uh, using that client QBR meeting to go hypothetically suggest some ideas and then decide you're not going to go follow through with some of them. So you realize, you know, it's a memento moment. We've for completely forgotten how to do this thing that we used to know. And you have to recreate a startup. So what we did was create a tiger team to go after a new idea, a completely new idea, have them move a lot faster. They don't have to follow as many of the rules. They can, they can just move fast. And you've got a dedicated client experience person, a dedicated salesperson. And you've got a five-person team who just yeah. goes out there to go figure this thing out. And is that, a, is that like a multi-discipline team? Like you have sales growth, product engineering It is. As well, and whoever's quarterbacking that team, the founder still got to be pretty involved. But we're pretty lucky that we have a VP of product strategy who's kind of that generalist sort of thinker who can process a lot of different data and synthesize some conclusions. But that's just one example of the thing that changes that you knew how to do. You have the advantage of speed and data across lots of different touch points of your customers early on. And later on, because of the specialization, the thing that was easy for you to do early becomes more challenging. How do you structure either your team, your communication, your metrics, like all this stuff to kind of know when you're in that trough or in that like, oh, that stall point? and to get out of it as quickly as possible. So the tiger team part yeah. like obviously helps, but yeah. what other things are you doing to either recognize or like solve some of these problems and still maintain growth on yeah. you know, maybe the core pieces? Well, the smartest thing I think you can do is hire some executives who are a little more seasoned at growing a company past a certain point. So uh, you as a founder, I think your advantage is that you're very adaptable and hopefully you're learning quickly. 
but you need some people who've been there and done that and know what good process looks like. Yeah. Process becomes important. We incorporated OKRs, objectives and key results, as a system to align people across the company, you know, shoot for big goals, but really be clear what the big two or three things are per department. Very recently, our CFO brought this idea of a decision-making framework to me. I didn't even realize I was doing this, and now I realize, wow, I've screwed this one up too. You know, early on, when you're up to 40 people, uh, you as a CEO have to make very quick calls about lots of different things and move very quickly on little information. Later on, if you're not careful, people still keep coming to you to make decisions on things. And some of those things, uh, you know, maybe it's hiring a new executive or how do we set up the sales org or there's a big purchase that needs to be approved. Some of those decisions, perhaps it's right for you to be involved in. Some of those decisions, I feel like, why are you even asking me? You know, you can make the call on this thing. There are other things that you're left out of the decision. You're kind of like, wow, I really should have been involved in that. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's my fault because I've not been clear with my team about which decisions I want to be involved in, which ones can be delegated to someone completely different. So our CFO, John, wisely brought this system that McKinsey has developed, HBR talks about, Harvard Business Review talks about it too. And there's a decision-making framework where all the key decisions, you sort of annotate them, not every single decision, but the important ones, and the ones that recur frequently. And you identify who's the decision maker for this thing. Who is going to be the recommender of one or more solutions? Who might have to be the agreer for this decision to take place? Who is inputting in uh, data or uh, experience into this process? And finally, who's going to execute that decision? And a lot of conflict occurs because two people have just completely different mental models about how a decision should go down, and it, it doesn't get talked about. So a lot of that just gets taken out of the conflict, gets taken out when you just talk about it ahead of time, create a system, agree to it. And you know that's a theory at least, but wow, I was like, this is like a lightning bolt for me. I'm like, why didn't we do this like two years ago? Yeah, yeah. So I, I worked at Google where OKRs were really, really big. Um, they were super useful, obviously, for a company that was 20, 30, now more thousands of people, right? You know, you've gone from really small to, you know, to, how, what's headcount? Uh, we're about 230 people. Okay, so over 200 people, probably growing pretty rapidly on headcount as well. When do you implement some of these things? Like, looking back, like, yeah. because I know if you implement OKRs at five people, yeah. it's, it feels like, ah, this company's way too small for this. Yeah. The decision-making framework, maybe that would work at five people as well, but there's still a lot just kind of going on the fly. Like, yeah. is it 40, 50, 70? Like, what do you think on, on some of these pieces? Yeah, uh, engineers have a term, premature optimization, where you're trying to build something before it's really a problem. So I think you want to have, uh, you don't want to just create a bunch of work and process for its own sake. When you start to realize that something is a pain point over and over, and it's happened three or four times, and it's causing some stress, and someone's had hurt feelings, or there's conflict, or some sort of heated discussion, then you're like, hey, maybe there's a way to avoid this. There's a pattern of things that seems to be happening here. So generally, throughout the company, uh, even hiring, very early on, we did every job. Uh, early in Move yeah. Blank's life, you're either building or selling. Yeah. There was no other job. Uh, at some point, we had a dozen customers, and we realized the selling team was doing a lot of the implementation and was taking 80% of our time. We said, you know what? We need a customer success person. There's a title that's being thrown out there about this sort, sort of thing. Yeah. So we hired our first person. And so there's a division of roles that keeps happening at some point, and specialization where more and more of your time gets swallowed up with something. And the good thing is if you've done that role, you know what you're looking for in the person that you're hiring. You want someone better than you at it who can teach you 
a lot more about that role. So you manage to raise the bar significantly. Uh, today, I don't do every single role, but uh, there's a little bit of the a pain, but other people do, and there's a little bit of pain that is faced in the organization. You realize, hey, we need a different kind of configuration. So uh, it's always like operate at that edge and like feel the pain uh, for a while, and then realize that you've got to go. You just want to make the like resonance as short as possible. Yeah. Like keep going up. Yeah. HQ is in New York? Officially? Our headquarters, headquarters are in New York. But you got, got offices. offices kind of everywhere. Right? Yeah, uh, we've got about 27 people in San Francisco. It feels like just three and a half years ago, our first person went there and planted a flag and was working out of a WeWork. We got 27 people out of there, and that office is filled up, so we can't have any more people there until we move to our new space in September, I think. We've got about 25 people in London that are servicing a lot of Europe. Uh, we're starting to sell in Japan, so we made, uh, we've made we got a couple of consultants there, and we've got our first full-time hire in Japan, seven or eight customers in that country, uh, Australia. We've got a guy waiting to get his visa approved to go to Australia to help uh, sell in that market. And is it the nature of you, like, because you're going after the Uniteds and some of those, like, you need boots on the ground, or is there a different strategy there rather than just having everyone in New York and serving the world and being on planes a lot? I kind of have a bias. I've done uh, with product teams and development. I know you'll hear different advice, but I've done it both ways. I've had centralized product and engineering and that worked really well. I've done the distributed thing too. Uh, some people rave about it and I guess that can work if you design your company right from the start to be distributed first. But for us, we keep product and engineering and design very close. So you can have whiteboarding sessions, you can have coffees, impromptu meetings and more of the being close to the customer when that's important, sales and customer success, we tend to focus on putting people in that market. And we start small. I think one of the things companies can do is look for proxies. Uh, there are bigger companies that have laid breadcrumbs and, and a path for you to follow. So you know, think about, for us, who is the big email service providers? Where did they set up their offices? How big are each of these offices? Can we talk to them? What are the email volumes they're seeing uh, for the senders in each of those markets? And rather than relearn everything, uh, it's much easier when you follow Magellan, who's already made the map, than to go uh, make the mistakes yourself. I like that. That's awesome. And to go a little specific on New York, what's it like building you know, a company in New York, having your headquarters here? Like, Tell me about the e ecosystem yeah. here. I've worked in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, and so there is a maturity and a way they know how to build just legendary companies. Uh, and there's teams and there's experience and stuff that you can just draw from. I moved here about 15 years ago. And some of the advantages here, we're in an era where it's valuable to be close to your customer, whether it's informing your product or selling or having a really good feedback loop about what you're doing right and wrong. So being on the island of Manhattan, you know, right there, you've got hundreds of companies that, that are your potential customers that you can stay very close to. And it's a very customer-rich environment, even more than the Bay Area, where you've got those kind of technology, bleeding-edge type of customers, perhaps. So that's hugely valuable. Uh, I also don't think it's nearly as competitive a marketplace for talent. It is competitive, but the Bay Area is just insane right now. And uh, so I, I think there's people who want to do a bigger thing and are willing to put in the time and the tenure to make big things happen over, over a long period of time, which is valuable to have that tenure with uh, the people that you work with. And uh, access to Europe, too. You know, if, if you ask an executive to hop on a plane to London, the time zones and the 12 hour, 13 hours it's going to take, you know, really people tend to avoid that a little bit. Yeah. But in New York, it's a great magnet to pull people from Europe, from San Francisco, and to really think about building a global business. That's awesome. Yeah, it's super cool. And, and when you think about, you know, New York's obviously a huge metropolitan, you know, every, you know, race, creed, ethnicity, whatever you want. You think about like the people 
maybe not from those demographics, but from like a engineer in New York, a salesperson in New York versus like a salesperson or engineer out in the Bay Area or in other ecosystems that you've been in. Is there anything unique? Like, is there anything where you're like, oh, this is a New York culture right here for our sales force? Well, I think the lack of a monoculture in New York is a really good thing. You know, I used to be in the Bay Area and like everyone's talking tech. Uh, I was at a dinner and it was like a 10 p.m. dinner at a friend's house and there wasn't a single engineer at the table, but everyone, you had your tech lawyer, your tech investor, your tech product manager, and everyone was talking shop. It's an industry town. And so you don't realize those types of conversations until you're outside the bubble. And I believe diversity is important in experience and background and all these things. Being in New York, you're able to attract people who've had a different set of experiences that they're able to bring to bear and come together and maybe solve problems in some fundamentally different ways than a Bay Area company might solve. Yeah, that's cool. Awesome, man. This is great. You like speak in sound bites, so it's perfect. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you so much to Vivek for being a part of the podcast. Now you're on your way to becoming a growth and visualization expert. Today, we talked about the last millisecond experience, phase transitions of growth, avoiding premature optimization, and centralized versus distributed teams. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell and the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen and watch. The podcast gods tend to like those types of things, and we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 